So if I were new to Christianity or perhaps even new to this church, perhaps if I were someone who had experienced Christianity when I was younger, but in a way that seems so irrelevant to the world and so irrelevant to, you know, a progressive world. You know, we live in the 21st century, not a medieval world. And my experience with Christianity had been more medieval than progressive. I, I, I confess that I would come to this passage and I would sneer. I would be cynical. I would be a little bit amazed that this church situated right in the middle of New Haven across the street from universities and whatnot, that, that this church would even take seriously a passage like the one we just read. I mean, are we serious? I mean, really? Do you really buy into this story? Demons? Demon possession? Exorcism? Call it what you want? I mean, it's true that we engage this text, and honestly, we need to be a bit mindful that, that there are some very wrong projection or, or, or portrayals of, of this dark side of spirituality or the world. You either have these sort of medieval mysticisms in the way in which we at least conjure up the myth of demonology in a modern sci-fi kind of Hollywood depiction, and I emphasize fi for fiction, for most, if I've really all of everything I can think about that is portrayed in the Hollywood version or even in the lure of demonology is false. Whether it's the exorcism, the poltergeist, the, you know, you could go through all these things. There's so much about that image that is really derived out of these, again, these sort of dark ages or medieval kinds of caricatures where the church, even the church that portrayed them was off rail. But that's what we think of, isn't it? And so at least be encouraged that we're not taking our cues from Hollywood or this kind of mysticism. But then again, if one does take demonology seriously, we also are aware that even among churches today, there is a kind of fascination, dare I say fanaticism, that is in itself weird. And I wouldn't blame you if you're thinking, oh, is this a weird church? Well... I hope not, because honestly, the fanaticism is not where we want to go either. You see, it's true that either we trivialize and, non and treat as nonsensical the medieval superstitions, or we materialize our world. We are materialists, which means we think of nature as only being visible. And we don't concede or consider that the possibility that nature, not supernature, but nature, that which is created is not just created visible or material, it is also created spiritual and invisible. 
C.S. Lewis warned in his preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you don't know that book, it's a must read and it's a satirical novel about devils and demons and their evil schemes. And they are truly, you know, though it's fictional, it's, it's, it's seeking to understand the nature of the underworld or the nature of this dark domain we call the spirituality domain of the devil or the demons or the devils. But he says rightly that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And he uses devils and demons synonymously, which they really are synonymous, by the way, even if there's but a hierarchical uh, scheme within it. But he says this about the, the devils. One of the two equally opposite errors is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. For they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail both a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now that's exactly, if you're sitting here today, that's exactly what, at least according to C.S. Lewis, and I think he's right, if in fact there are the devils, they would like nothing more than for you at least to discount them in a materialist worldview only, or to fantasize or fanaticize them in a way that they become like magic or supernatural. So here we are reading a passage in a holy scripture, one that is from God himself in our understanding of it, and we're reading about demons and devils, and I'd be tempted to take the bait of the demons and devils and make this a sermon about demonology and to make it an apologetic for the spiritual world of demons. But this passage isn't about an apologetics lesson. It takes it for granted. It goes right to the case and says, you know, makes no apology, just says, this is what happened. And what happened wants us not to take seriously the devils so much as he wants us to take seriously Christ. It'd be a grave mistake then to take the bait. We will therefore seek to avoid both errors of the mysticism and the materialists uh, and not taking them seriously enough or taking them too seriously. But more so, if we are going to understand what this passage is really about, we will not want to spend the whole time defending what the Bible here takes for granted. And so part one of this sermon is going to be a relatively quick case for demons. Just put it out there for you very quickly. If you're a note taker, don't try to take meticulous notes. I'm going to cover a lot of material really fast just so you know it, just so you know it's there, that we do, in fact, believe that there is such a thing as a spiritual, invisible world, and that in that world there are created angels that have fallen. We call them demons or devils. That's part one, just to clarify what a demon is so that you can then read this passage, at least with the kind of, 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 of understanding that the original readers would have read it with. What did they understand was true, and I would argue that we must understand this true so that you could understand this passage. But then we're going to go to the passage. The passage is an incredible passage, perfectly in, in fit with what Matthew has wanted to say about the nature of the kingdom of God, 
and particularly the nature of Christ himself. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, and again, already the, the, just the joy of being restored to you in communion and with one another. What a beautiful, wonderful gift you've given us, this Sabbath day rest. We pray now you would speak to us uh, yet another gift, that you would enlighten us, that we would be changed by being here with you. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, part one, demons, question mark? Again, if you're going to take notes, just throw a word down at best. First of all, just let's just kind of explode the, the, the bias, the, the assumption we need to make sure isn't here. Why bias a nothing but materialist visible world only? For those who would come and snicker, say, well, just ask the question back. What proof do you have that there's no visible spiritual reality to life? I mean... We start with that very assumption because we believe in God. God, if God really is God, is a spirit. And therefore, there is a spiritual reality because God is real. Just as real as the material reality. Christ comes into the world, according to Colossians. He is the image of the what? Invisible God. First Timothy, to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, this king, the only God, be honor, glory, and forever, ever, amen. And we know within this invisible reality, not only is God invisible God, only manifest in the mystery of the incarnation in a human form, but we also know that there are spiritual authorities, powers, and forces, all described as in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against just flesh and blood, the material. Our battle is not won with a military gun. Why? Because there's another reality that is more pernicious. It's against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. By heavenly places, we think of heavenly as good. Here it's described as another realm. It's another realm. It's interesting in the, in the Old Testament that, that you might say, I, I don't remember or recollect a whole lot of, idol of, of uh, demonology in the Old Testament. Well, that would be true to extent that it's clearly not as prominent. In fact, as you'll see, there's nowhere where, where demons and demonology, if you will, is more prominent than in the Gospels. It's relatively, in comparison, not as explicit in the Old Testament nor in the epistles. It shows up in the Gospels, and it shows up in Revelations. Hint, what do those two things have in common? The intrusion of the Christ upon the cosmic creation. That's the thing that that has in common. That's a real and significant clue for you about how we're going to read this passage. But we'll come back down to that. But, but here's the thing. Before you discount the Old Testament particularly, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12 too that, that, that the gods of the pagans were dumb idols, he calls them. You know, things that we would portray with wood and, and tinsels and metals and things like that that they would conjure up together. And in Deuteronomy, you heard it read that we... That, that when they were sacrificing to a, quote, idol, that was, in fact, a sacrifice to the demons. The idols themselves were nothing but blocks of wood and not gods. Remember that. Idols are not 
gods. That's the whole point. There is no God but God, one, and his name is Yahweh. They are false gods, fake gods, gods of our own fabrication. And yet also we need to understand according to Paul and even Deuteronomy that these idols that are described as gods, small dg, while they are not God, according to Deuteronomy, they are demonic in the sense that they're, they're impacted by and are portrayals of and demonic activity. Let me just read it straight from Corinthians 10. No, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, and he's talking about here Deuteronomy 32 that you heard read today, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, only it was demonic, not divine power. In other words, while idols themselves were nothing but blocks of wood or God, uh, and they weren't gods, it does not mean that they were nothing at all or that there was no power involved in idol worship. Only it was demonic, not divine power. And Paul says that when someone worships an idol, he is really worshiping a demon. And so we see it biblically in the Old Testament. But what is a demon exactly? Well, simply put, a demon is a bad angel. By nature, they're the same. Therefore, everything true about angels are true about demons, except that one is morally good and one is morally bad. Like angels, now this is important, they are part of creation. They were created by God, even if they existed already when the earth had begun, and were exceedingly numerous, called oftentimes the heavenly host, those who, of course, worship God in the creation there were angels. Now listen to this. They are not supernatural. They're spiritual, but they're not supernatural. They were created just like you and me. Spiritual in that they are invisible, like for instance our souls are invisible, but not supernatural. At best, superhuman-esque but not supernatural. If they do not what man cannot, it is not by possession of omniscience or omnipotence, but by some natural law acting out through their spiritual existence. Again, I've read Colossians. They are intelligent and voluntary beings. As such, angels and demons are created to praise and, or the angels are created to praise and worship God, teach the prophets and minister to the saints and enjoy communion with God. Like in the angelic courts, there is a kind of hierarchical college of angels and demons. You think of the archangel Michael and the archangel, what we call, who we call Satan or the, or the prince or demon of darkness in Ephesians 6, 12. Unlike angels, of course, demons curse and despise God and have broken communion with God. In other words, like us, they are created with will, a will which is capable of rejecting God, which is the original sin. Demon possession? What do you think of that? Oh boy, here we go, right? Well, whatever you think, don't think of Hollywood movies, okay? In other words, first of all, let's distinguish possession as distinguished from temptation. But in the same sense, these demons 
invisible except for when they assume some body or influence some visible incarnation human body. In other words, assume the bodies of living people, suppressing their temporary consciousness, for instance, or personality of the human soul to which the body belonged. But most especially, it's just any human being under the influence of the temptation and power of the demonic. And it wouldn't look supernatural. So if you have in your head, if you've seen The Exorcist, that I, I credit that movie with part of my salvation, by the way. I was, I'll just say it out. I was high as a kite when I went and saw it at 12 o'clock midnight. And I came home and thought I was in Levithan. And I prayed to God like all night long, save me, save me. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I know that I'm possessed. It was a horrible experience. I can remember it as clearly as I can sit here looking at you, thinking I was elevating over the bed. Now, I confess that. That was horrible. It was a horrible experience. I wish it hadn't happened. I wished I wasn't that kind of a kid when I was around 18 or 17 years old, but I was. And it really was a true experience that God in his graciousness used to waken me up to my soul. I can say that. But there's nothing about the exorcist that I could actually project to you as saying that's what it, we mean by demon possession. It's not a supernatural event. Okay, just remember, they're not supernatural. It's not contortions of necks and all this kind of stuff. They just simply have influence and power over a human body or soul in a way to kind of control their will and their, and, and the, and their, and their you know, uh, activities. We see examples of this like in Luke 4. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean spirit, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What have you to do with us? And Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? And I know you are the Holy One of God. What's interesting, as we're going to see, is the demons, they truly had an orthodox understanding of God and very willfully just rejected it as their God, as their Lord. So about demon possession, and then we'll turn to our passage, let me just at least unpack a few things. Does demon possession occur today? Do we think this is relevant? Because I know that's what you want to ask. Well, I'm going to give you four answers and, and, and kind of digest them quickly. One answer could be it never occurred, as in let's just discount all this stuff as myth. Another answer is it occurs today, but, but as it did anciently, so it's in a very, you know, in the way that we see it in the Gospels. Three is it occurred anciently, but not after the resurrection of Christ. Something happened then. And fourth, it may occur today, but much less frequently than that. Let's look at those two, or those four. It never occurred. Well, the scripture distinguishes demon possession from mental illness. You need to know that. There's many passages that does this. So don't think that, oh, you know, some would say demon possession is just what we call mental illness, like epilepsy or something like that. Nope. Mark, Mark uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 distinguishes the two. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him to all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. Hear what's going on there? Jesus addressed the demons, not individuals. This is a pretty cruel hoax. If Jesus was talking to someone who's, I mean, imagine I come to you and I start talking to you like you're a demon. 
That'd be pretty cruel, wouldn't it? Do you think Jesus is cruel? I mean, there's a lot of things, but is he cruel? No, he's, he's talking to that which he believed existed. And it's recorded in many, many passages throughout the Gospels. And their scriptures, of course, record demons speaking. As demons speaking. If through human agency. So we're going to say it did occur. Number two, if it occurs today... As anciently, the problem, though, with this view is that it fails to grant that anything occurred with the death and resurrection of Christ in terms of the defeat of the powers of darkness. Again, I don't have time to show it to you, but throughout the scripture, something categorically changed when Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And what changed fundamentally is a kind of pre-ultimate judgment judgment upon the devils and the demons. They were bound as in a chain it describes in Revelation. And so you see that there's a sense in which, yes, something does change. They are not as free to roam and to do and inflict their pain now under the now but not yet fully consummated kingdom of God. The third option, it occurred anciently but not after the resurrection of Christ. Again, that would be going the other direction. If the second one says it occurs just as it did before, so we'd be looking for things like what happened here in the Gospels. No, something's changed. They're not nearly as pernicious. And yet on the other hand, we do say that, that, that they are allowed only that Christ might demonstrate his powers. It's interesting again that in the epistles, there's hardly any mention given to demon possession or exorcism. You see it in the Acts, which I count as Gospels Part 2. But in the epistles, there's an incredible and an amazing absence of instruction, of teaching. What's going on here? Something has changed at the ascension. The demons and the devils are now under and in submission to Christ, even as they await their final destruction. In the same manner that a Christian is under submission to Christ for good, not for evil, not restraining us, but empowering us, even as we're awaiting our full uh, communion with Christ in the end. You see, there's a kind of... Both as it would be true with angels, so it's true with devils. As it's true even in, in terms of us. The kingdom that now has come, it is certainly come and there has been a real cosmic change. And yet it's not yet full and consummated. And so this is possible biblically because the passage which indicates that restraint has been put upon Satan until the resurrection has happened. As the plan of redemption advances, the scope of Satan's operations is progressively narrowed. Just as a general who is defeated is, not, is cut off from one end or, or another of his resources, but he's not yet dead. You see the kind of uh, analogy I just gave you? Someone who is, for all practical manners, defeated. He's lost his military might, but he's still fighting. That's the picture of the demons right now. In redemptive history. And finally, demonic activity is a sign of the messianic power. Now, this is where we're going to segue to our passage. Demonic, demonic activity is a sign of messianic power. It's true. Demon activity by far 
escalates in the Gospels. More so than in, you see in the Old Testament or the epistles. The only time that it is prominent, is, is as prominent as in the Gospels, is, as I've said, the book of Revelations. And what do they share in common? Hmm. The intrusion of the Messiah upon the cosmos. And upon this intrusion, there is this evoked and powerful response. And that should put chills down your back. Not about demons, but about who Christ is. I will say something a bit unorthodox in the way it's being said, but it's true. Oh, that we had as much respect for the God who we call our Messiah as demons do. For we know that the demons, when he came upon this earth, they shuddered. Not my words, the scripture's words. What this tells us That from the context of creation, the intrusion of Christ is the intrusion of an incredibly profound and seismic event. We see this, interestingly, as anticipated by the prophets. For instance, we hear of King Solomon within the Jewish tradition especially is also credited with having knowledge of exorcism. And there also is located descriptions of that in the Qumran and the Dead Sea Scroll passages that speaks about this. And even Josephus, a secular uh, historian of the time, writes about it. The prolific exorcism activity that we see in Jesus doing would have been a sign to the Jews that the Messiah, after the type of Solomon, has come. This is portrayed in Psalms 91, for instance where there's this connotation almost that you would describe as for exorcism, especially in the Septuagint translation that would have been common to the writers of the New Testament. It's quoted here, the Septuagint version, terror by night. That's a cultural reference to demons that afflict people at night. And the arrow that flies by day is again rendered noonday demons in the Septuagint. You see what's happening here in Psalms 91 is this depiction of the Solomonic power over demonic intrusion. And yet as a type of what would be fulfilled in the Messiah. Again, Ephesians 6 how it is that we wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, authorities, against the cosmic powers. And even Colossians picks up this theme, perhaps, in Colossians 1, where he says, Christ has delivered us from the what? Domain of darkness. Very closely akin to the language of Psalms 91. And so having demythologized demons, such as to consider them seriously, without mysticizing them, I've hopefully gotten rid of any notion of what you've heard about in Hollywood's depictions and many of the even Christian fanatical kind of books that are written about them, let's turn to our passage, finally. Look what's happening. Again, I'm going to move pretty quickly. It's pretty obvious. What we're going to look at is the extent of Christ's authority and power. He's already shown that he has power 
in a kind of teaching, if you remember in chapter 7, where the, everyone was moved with awe and amazement because he taught not like the scribes. He taught lot like one whose words create things, forgive things. His words had action attached to them in a manner that only God could do. And so they were amazed by his authority. We saw Christ already portrayed as having authority over the natural, visible, physical world. When he cured all these sicknesses and diseases, right? That climaxed when we saw Christ who had authority even over the winds. Remember? The winds and the sea, he says, stop. One word. Boom. They submit. This is all about your Savior, brother and sister. This is not about demons. And so we enter into this world, this, this amazing depiction of a world that we know exists, that the authors knew existed, the spiritual world, the invisible world, and now we see Christ's authority and power again. First, verse 28, when he came to the other side of the country, the Gadarenes, which is a Gentile region, of course, which is why they had pigs, by the way, two demoniacs came out, that is, people possessed or influenced by demons, they came out of the tombs and met him, and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. These men taken over by demons under demonic influence, we don't know exactly what it would have looked like, but I'm not looking again to Hollywood to find out. And what did they request? We know that these, these, these beings were fierce. They were fearful that people didn't want to go near them, they were terrorizing that region. But suddenly they see Jesus coming over the hill or through the plain, I don't know, through up from the sea. And immediately, suddenly, they said, immediately, they, they knew what they just encountered. They knew it immediately. I mean, you could hear them in our own, you know, oh, my God. They shouted. And there was this herd of swine, which was feeding at some distance from him. And the demons, they begged him. They begged him. These fears, terrors, they begged Jesus the Christ. If you just cast us out and send us into the herd of swine. We need to stop here. What kind of an event is this? Don't read this too quickly. What is happening here? The invisible cosmic powers of darkness are shuddering. They're scared out of their wits at just the sighting of this same one so gentle as a lamb who would die for our sins. And they're shuddering. This is your Savior, people. This is who you know. As gentle and loving 
and gracious as he is terrorizing to those who are against him. They're not unorthodox, these demons. For what do they say? What have you to do with us, son of God? Mark, Mark and Luke insert son of the most high God. I mean, greater respect and acknowledgement could not be found anywhere. Remember James chapter 2, 19, I've already alluded to it. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You want this God on your side? Or do you want to be on the side of the demons when they encounter this God? Because everyone in this room is going to encounter Jesus. Every single one of you. And everyone that's watching. According to the scriptures... He is our final judge, this one that encountered the demonics in the first century. The timing of his ministry is, of course, provisional. Jesus came to inaugurate, we call it, the kingdom of God, but not consummate it yet. And the demons had good theology again. Oh, that we would have the theology of the demons without the horrible, wicked will. Because what does he say next? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Did you catch that? This is incredible. They were aware that their time was limited, that they had been defeated. The very presence of this Lord on earth said, it's over, done. I have no chance whatsoever. The fight is gone. I concede. White flag. Throw us in the swine. This word prokairo is used oftentimes to describe before the Lord comes. It's particularly shown, for instance, 1 Corinthians. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Here's that word again. Prokairo. Before the time. And then he repeats it as in a synonymous manner. Before the Lord comes again. That's what these demonics were saying. This provisional judgment, make it, you know, make it tame, would you? Don't, don't do it yet. Don't do it yet. Please have mercy on us. Just throw us in and let us run over the, over the cliff I, rather than to confront you directly. Oh, that we had such respect. During this limited time, there is again a temporary binding of a demonic activity before the time without total destruction. If you cast us out, send us, they said, into the herd of swine. Notice that their immediate concession to Christ, superior authority and power is now no contest. In both ways, you see the demons indicated this awareness that while Jesus has authority over them, it is not God's timetable for the full destruction of the forces of evil yet. And this is where we hit the climax. It's all building up, and then here it is. And he said to them, what? I mean, I've tried to depict what this would look like, this scene. Maybe it was just go. Or maybe it was, go! 
I don't know. But that's what you should be feeling right now. I mean, I'm feeling energy in my bones preaching this. Maybe the Spirit is coming, but I'm just going, whoa. Go. That's it. Thank you back there. Amen. And that's what happened. Boom. Gone. Over the, over the cliff. Mm. I'm not going to mess it up with any more words. Just go. And so they came out and entered the swine, and suddenly the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished into the water. Of course, awaiting their final judgment. This miracle forms the most instructive and impressive instance of demonic possession found in the Gospels. The whole scene before us is with vivid and terrible reality, isn't it? A powerful demonstration of benevolence of the Gospel that saves two poor men. Don't forget that. And yet, who saves these two poor men under the influence of these demons by virtue of the judgment with authority and power unmatched anywhere in all of the cosmos upon those demons. Jesus is God in human flesh appearing with complete authority over devils and demons and angels and whatever else. That's the point. That's what you're supposed to take from this passage. Simple. But then we come to this last section. So what would your response be? And right now you're thinking, oh, me and my piousness, I know what I would do. I would bow down and worship. Yeah. You think? Hmm. This is where the story turns ironic. Because the response is just not what I expected. And so the swine herds ran off and on going and uh, the, the, the swine herds ran off, and on going into the town, they told the whole story about what had happened to the demoniacs. And then the whole town came out. The whole town. This is their response. We just told you about a guy who says go and the demons obey. And he just saved two poor men who've been set free from demonic possession. And the whole town, this is what they do. They all rally around. They perform a mob, and they go out to them, and they said, please get out of here. Get out of my life. It's incredible. How ignorant. How dumb. How, I don't know, rebellious? How fearful? It's really hard to know exactly what motivated them. Most commentators think that it was their livelihood. These folks made a living by swine, and he was destroying their economy. Maybe it was all like, man, we're scared to death of you. Just get out of here. I don't know, you know, the kind of fear where you just don't want to mess with it. Maybe that's it, but there's just nothing in the passage that tells you that. The only thing we see as a hint is that. I'm reminded of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's little saying, earth crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest of us sit around and pluck blackberries. It's that kind of response, I think, that might be imaged here. You're in the midst of a living fable, I don't know. 
and they're more concerned about their economy. We wouldn't do that, right? Think very carefully about that. How distracted we get. I mean, how do we find ways to just not have to deal with Jesus? We should take demons seriously. Not in the mythological sense of demology or Hollywood or demon fanaticism, but in the sense that they exist. They exist as tempters. We think of how they tempted Christ in the garden. In 1 Timothy 3, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, that is Satan and his demons, has tempted you. Yes, demons bring thoughts into our minds, bring circumstances into our lives that would tempt us. Don't be unaware that just because a door opens or an opportunity presents itself or a thought seems right and good, that you are not being tempted by the devil and not by God. Great, great mistake in discerning God's will, just thinking that because I have a thought and it feels good, it's right. Be aware, Christian, there are demons and they do tempt. And they tempt the way they tempted Christ with things that are in themselves probably pretty good. Nothing wrong with food. Nothing even wrong with power, if if used rightfully. They're tempters. But we should remember that the power that threw them into the swan says to you, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Demons are accusers, condemners. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Revelations 12, he calls the demons accusers. But we as Christians have Christ. We say, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed intercedes for me? How personal is that? We do take them seriously, but we take Christ more seriously is my point. And Christ can set you free. But we don't take them too seriously. They are but not, they are not God's. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for the he who is in the world is greater than he who is in you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so if you're not a believer, I beg you to receive him. Don't push him away. Don't be concerned about all the complexity that comes with it. And Oh, this is going to get complicated with my money. This is going to get complicated with my job and my ambitions, my fun, all these things that keep us from God. Man, do you understand who this is? He alone can deliver you from evil. All these other things, if they keep you from Christ, are idols and they are informed by demons. That's what we've learned today. It could be your economics. It could be medicine. It could be politics. It could be the academy. It could be the military. It could be populism. It could be other people. Those things that say, Jesus, just get away. You're making my life complicated here. Please be warned. Really dumb thing to do. Really dumb thing to do. Only Christ can save you. That's the point. Only Christ has the authority to do that. Amen.